HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at... 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview incredible people in the world of hospitality, and we talk about their challenges, their successes, the opportunities. Today, my guest is someone who dropped out of college and has had the greatest career ever since. Um, She knew exactly what she wanted to do, puts a big question mark into like why people go to go to college. We can talk about that. Um, She's continued her learning ever since and is now the beverage director and a partner at one of the best restaurants in New York City. It is a Korean steakhouse called Coat, and they just, I don't know, last week opened uh, Undercoat. So I'm very happy to have you here, Victoria James. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I did a lot of reading about you, as I always like to do. And one of the things that really struck me is how pretty much every single piece started. And I'm actually doing, (laughs) I'm falling into the same, um, you know, problem here or thicket. Uh, They say at the tender age of 13, you... uh, started working in a diner. So you have been working in the restaurant industry for quite some time. So let's let's talk about uh, your early bio and what is wrong with calling you tender. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it, the thing about the word tender is it's usually never referred to uh, with men. It's always women. And, um, you know, part of my vulgar language, but it essentially means young and fuckable. Um, and honestly, it's not exactly the word I'd like to be associated with. I think um, we probably should stop using that word for young women. <laughs> That's, um, yes, particularly when we're talking about 13. Yes. It gets really ugly then. Yeah. However, it is true that at the tough age of 13, you were mm. working in a diner. What made you want to do that? So um, in the household I grew up in, money was hard to come by. And we were a large family and trying to make ends meet. I always wanted to work and, you know, I started a small pet sitting business when I was a child and and lemonade stands and 
There was something about money. It's not even the monetary value. It, it held freedom. It held independence. It held purpose. It was something I was good at. And, you know, with a tumultuous childhood, there was there was very little I could control. But um, Can this, you tell me a little bit about that tumultuous childhood? Like, mm-hmm. what, what, where were you living and what did that childhood consist of? Yeah, so we hopped around quite a bit and... Um, uh, I was born in Washington, D.C., around Silver Spring, Maryland, and then we moved to Virginia, and then to New Jersey, and then later I moved to New York. But, um, you know, it, I had, you know, parents, you know, my mother was quite absent and eventually left altogether, and, and my father, you know, struggled with his own addictions. And so to grow up in a household with five children, uh, you know, it really forced me to kind of be uh, a quasi-mother figure to a lot of my siblings, who I, I love dearly, and... Um, you know, so that sort of independence that came with providing for them and myself led me to a greasy spoon diner at, at 13 in New Jersey, literally underneath the railroad tracks that led to New York. <laughs> How did you get there every day? Or however long yeah. you worked? So, um, so we lived at the top of South Mountain, right near the South Mountain Reservation in northern New Jersey. And the restaurant or diner was called Blue Moon Diner. So it was an, a, mile, a mile and a half away from our house and right down the South Mountain. And so I hiked there every day after school and then back up late at night, <laughs> um, which in retrospect was very unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope it was safe enough. Yeah. What it, did you find a sense of family in the, the diner? What about the seeds of working in the diner, aside from mm-hmm. the independence, made you think um, this is your path? Because, in fact, there's a lot of people who work in diners and then they realize it's not their path. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think I was in an interesting, um, so, you know, at, at school I didn't really have a lot of friends. I was, you know, we came from a low-income household and we were often made fun of because there were holes in our shoes and hand-me-down clothes and so I didn't have a lot of friends that, you know, were peers and at the diner, funnily enough, my friends were actually the dishwasher and the cook, um, Cisco and Antonio and um, you know, I always found it interesting because as a young 13-year-old girl, there's often this common misconception that you shouldn't hang out with these older men, um, perhaps, that were, you know, from, from a different culture or background. But um, they were really lovely, and they showed me that, you know, snaking drains and fighting cockroaches and mice could actually be fun. And um, with them, I found a sense of friendship and, and home. And so unlikely friends to a 13-year-old. However, they're the ones that made me fall in love with restaurants. Mice, cockroaches, and all, <laughs> because those actually don't disappear. I mean, really, you know, right. yes. all the way. Um, they exist in two, three Michelin-starred restaurants. Exactly. Shocking, but true. Yeah. And so you, you went to college, um, but only briefly. Mm-hmm. And from what you're describing is your your family household, perhaps there, there wasn't the push that you really had to continue your education. But what was in your mind when you decided to not pursue an education of of a traditional kind? Of course, yeah. And, you know, this is something I certainly struggled with because currently uh, my younger sister is a senior in college and, you know, she's struggling with what do I want to do with my life? And, you know, I'm not the best advocate, but I'm always like, well, you can't drop out of school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And why do you say that to her? I say that to her because, you know, for some people, college gives them structure and purpose at a time when they don't often have it. Um, However, for me, I found that structure and purpose um, rather in an unlikely way. It was the hospitality industry I always loved. And I didn't drop out of school to, you know, just hang out and smoke cigarettes. Um, I dropped out of school to pursue a different sort of education. Um, and of course, you know, my father freaked out. And I was like, well, <laughs> if you're not paying for school, then <laughs> you, <laughs> you you can't freak out. Um, but, you know, he's very proud now that it's it's a different type of education. So I do encourage people to pursue their passion. And so your passion was in, in wine, which... At the time, did you drop out at, it sounds so funny, like, did you drop out at 18, 19, 20? Um, 19, yeah, I had two, I was halfway through college yeah. and had two years under my belt and nothing about school, I was going to Fordham University and nothing about it really drew me in. Um, I, you know, left classes essentially to bartend and I loved bartending and the interaction with the guests and the history behind the cocktails more than classes. 
So I signed up for a wine class and then signed up for, for another and deferred for a semester to become a seller hand at Harry's at Hanover Square. I like that you call it seller hand rather than seller rat. Because seller rat. <laughs> <laughs> it's so often called a seller rat. Yeah. Um, and Harry's was an exemplar of a particular type of mm. restaurant. Uh, what, what did you learn at Harry's? So it was pro- since it was your education, <laughs> right? That's you went in, yeah. you were you were taught. Yeah, I mean that was probably the steepest uh, learning curve. Um, so I went in as a nineteen-year-old girl who traditionally beforehand had drank wine from a box and uh, knew nothing except that red wine was red and white wine was white. And here I'm thrown into this cellar that's you know rumored to be valued at over eight million dollars and. Monetary value aside, Harry Pool Cacos has been collecting wine since the 60s upon release, um, when Bordeaux was a couple dollars a bottle. So it was more of a time capsule, and that's what was so beautiful about it. So I had, it was almost this, this playground where I was able to learn all these valuable things. And then to juxtapose the beauty of that learning, at the same time, it was also, it was also a very ugly place. Um, as you can imagine, it was very male-dominated. It was in Wall Street. Um surrounded by all these financial institutions and being a young woman thrown into that is like, you know, a lamb being thrown into a den of wolves. So, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and, but what does that mean when you say you're like, what are the, what are the specifics? Like you were taken advantage of by the um, people, either the customers or your managers or, yeah, a little bit of both. Um, you know, the owners of the restaurants uh, were great people, but they're not around much. And as a result, you know, it's hard to always, you know, now, in you know, in uh, as a partner in a restaurant, I know how hard it is to constantly monitor those who work for you, but it is important. Um, and so as a result, at, at this restaurant, it's taken advantage of by managers and those who are supposed to, to protect me. Um, and so that was hard. That was really hard. Take advantage. Of, you had to work too hard. They um, they gave you the bad tables. Or um, I mean, I wish that were the case. It was. Um, it was. It was. Um, it was much more difficult than that. It was. Um, you know, being taken sexually advantage of as a young woman, and it's something that's hard to admit. <laughs> and you know, after a while, you you rationalize in your head that will. Well, maybe maybe he does love me. Maybe he does care for me. That's why he's doing these things to me. And and when you finally realize that that they don't, it's hard. And you you can't you know at that time this was very recent, but it was still seven eight years ago. When I I remember when I I told the owners and the investors, it was sort of like a oh well good for that guy. <gasps> um. You know, it's it's difficult. So, sorry, that was a very large <laughs> intake of breath. No, um, yeah, um, that's. <laughs> I am naive, admittedly, but that's shocking to me. Yeah, and how did that make you feel? That sounds. Yeah, that make you feel not good. Um, but you know what it did teach me was something. It was an unfortunate lesson I had to learn for myself. It taught me to that. Unfortunately, as a young woman in this industry, um, I have to be careful. I just, I, I do, and I have to surround myself. I have to put myself in an environment um, where hopefully this doesn't happen again. Um, and still, it, it did sometimes. Um, maybe not from management, maybe from a guest or, um, you know, verbal or physical. It's, 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 it's hard to avoid. Um, and so... How am I trying to combat that now is I'm trying to create a healthy place at Co where that doesn't exist. And, I, you know, we have an amazing team of all-female sommeliers and some great bartenders. And I just want them to feel safe. And I don't want them to feel taken advantage of or sexualized or belittled. And that's, that's so important for me. And I, I hope more women can do that. And, and we need more women and minorities in positions of power to combat that abuse. Did you feel in moving forward because you were you were at Harry's and then you worked at more incredible restaurants right you were mm-hmm. at um well, you, you were at Oriole mm-hmm. and you were at Piora which mm-hmm. was a precursor in a way to right. coat um and Maria mm-hmm. um was there something 
that you had to get over within yourself in taking those next jobs? Mm -hmm. And how did you do that? Yeah. So, you know, at Harry's, I realized that the environment was bad and I needed to get out. And more so than ever before, I realized that in order to be taken seriously in this industry, I needed a title or some sort of accreditation. Um, for maybe for other people, it was okay to just say, I know a lot about wine and I've studied, but for me, I, as a young woman, I needed some sort of pin or title. So, um, I, at 21 became a sommelier at Oriel. And then after a few months of being there, it was certified as a, a sommelier. So I had a, you know, a piece of paper and a pin and, um, became the youngest sommelier in the country and uh, that's why we keep getting the tender young that's, age uh, thing. That's the tender part. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is such an accomplishment. Like for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know that's, it is yeah. not something like taking, I mean, I studied really hard to take my written driver's test at 53. That's I'm like, hard. I studied really hard because I, I hate taking tests, but what, yeah. but like, this is the, mm-hmm. like take the LSATs and multiply it by, you know, a hundred. So it's great. Yeah, no, it was, it was fabulous. But, you know, then also quickly I realized that it didn't actually matter. <laughs> I mean, because even though I had a pin, it, you know, people still called me the wine girl or, or treated me the same. So, um, you know, after a while, I, I think I was searching for acceptance or approval in places that didn't matter. I had to kind of find it within myself and, you know, force myself. What was that work? Because I think it's so important. That is the divide to get over where you go from looking for outside, um, you know, uh, approval to internal approval. Like, how did you do that? Do you have a sense? (laughs) I mean, you know, it was difficult for me you know, I'm very fortunate in that I have my little sister, Laura, in my life. And she's, uh, sorry, I'm getting so emotional. Um, She's really my best friend and also sort of someone I can always bounce ideas off of. And, you know, I was, as a young woman in this industry, so insecure and um, so scared. But um, even though she was my little sister, she always kind of made me feel better. And, um, you know, she's the kind of person that takes no bullshit from anyone and um, she was the one that, you know, through her love, she really kind of healed me and made me want to be a better person for her. And so for me, that's how I found eventual, you know, I found that strength within myself is because of her. And so um, not everyone has, you know, Laura James in their life. So how do they do that? Well, they have to look for healthy love. Um, and um, I think that some people can heal themselves. But for me, I, I needed someone else. And, you know, her love was so healthy and so pure that um, it gave me strength. <laughs> she sounds amazing. I can't wait she's, to see what she does after college. <laughs> yeah, she's she's fantastic. I mean, that's that is that's a superpower, mm. you know, to make someone else feel confidence. And it, I think mm. it's the the beginning of uh, like true success in life. Like if you have enough in yourself, you can that you can share confidence. Yeah. Uh, so. Bravo, little sister. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, so I, now I try to give that to other women. And, yeah. um, you know, hopefully it's, it'll be contagious and we'll have an industry full of women empowering other women. Now, one, one thing that you mentioned was, uh, you know, being taken seriously and wanting to be taken seriously. And you one of the um, things that you've done is you've written a, a book called Drink Pink, The Celebration of Rosé. Mm-hmm. And... It's it's beautifully illustrated by um, by Lyle Relsback, um, and I'm just wondering how hard was it to decide to do a book called Drink Pink? Very hard. <laughs> um, so you know, I was incredibly fortunate that I was approached by a literary agent to to write a book on rosé, because of course it's you know a very hot topic these days. Um, but at first, I was very skeptical. Um, of course, at, you know, at the time I was 24, 25. Of course, I wanted a book deal. <laughs> um, it's the dream. But I was already struggling with being taken seriously in this industry. Um, I don't want to be pegged as the rosé girl with a pink I mean, book. I mean, you've already gotten wine girl, so you're going to go from wine girl to pink girl. Yeah. Really, probably not where you wanted to head. Yeah, it seemed like a severe demotion. <laughs> Um, so that was a struggle. And, you know, so I went home and I talked to Lyle, who's my, my then boyfriend, now now husband. Um, 
And I was like, should I do this? I mean, I'm, no one even takes me seriously. Why should I write a book about pink wines? And, um, you know, he's the one who really gave me strength. He was like, stop thinking about everyone and stop thinking about what people will think. Like, what you need to do is you need to write a book that's good about good rosé. And that doesn't exist. Right now, it's, you know, all women in bikinis on yachts. And that's not doing glory to a beverage that's as old as time and and can be wonderful. Um, so he encouraged me to bring substance to a category that had none. And, um, and I, I hope that's what I did. And luckily, you know, it was, it was very well received. And I think that's because I didn't fall prey to the pay to play and, um, all the schemes that are around, you know, the wine and liquor business. So much to talk about there. So, <laughs> uh, I, it's so rare that we find a whole, what they call like a hole in the market, right? Mm-hmm. Rosé is thought of as, um, something that you just drink and don't think about. Mm -hmm. And that is such an insult to the wine. And I love the fact that you went deep on it and had the nerve and the courage to, you know, take it seriously. And I think that by taking something that other people consider frivolous, taking it seriously and showing its depth, you add so much to the conversation and, um, you know, it helps you not that that was the goal, but it, now you could be the the pink woman. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so just let's talk a little bit about rosé. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it made and um, how is it sold? Yeah. So rosé can be made in really three main ways. The first one is you take a red grape. It spends a little bit of time with the skin, the juice inside. And so you get a pink color. Or... Um, you can use the saignet process, which is to bleed, and it's not necessarily a lot of skin contact. It's just the weight of the grapes um, causing a little bit of juice to kind of bleed out. Um, this is how the famous Sutter Home White Zinfandel was originally made. And um, that's really a byproduct of red wines. So you're trying to strengthen the red wine by bleeding off this uh, you know, watery pink juice. And then the last way is taking red wine and white wine and blending them together, which is, you know, not allowed in France unless it's champagne. I absolutely didn't know that last fact. Yeah. (laughs) And so Rosé has had a gigantic marketing campaign behind Mm -hmm. it, right? Because um, for a long time, no one one talked about Rosé at all. (laughs) And then it's sort of its heart to me has been broken by froze. I mean, yeah. It's gone all the way to the other side. Yeah. It's like the, mm-hmm. the frozen heart of rosé. <laughs> the marketing of rosé was done by big mm-hmm. companies, I guess. And um, so you were talking about the pay to play. What does that mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, there are a lot of big companies that kind of dominate the rosé marketplace, and I don't think I need to name them. I think everyone's well aware of them. You can just walk into your local wine shop. Um, and this is kind of something that, you know, Champagne was suffering. Oh, sorry. But, but how do people know the difference between, like, a big, bad rosé and, like, a delightful, you know, <laughs> cared-for rosé? Um, you know, that's the tricky part. You don't. Um, you know, you have to really trust your local wine shop, your sommelier, your retailer, because it's not something that says it on the bottle. Um, you know, so you have to you have to do a little bit of digging, and that's what the book aimed to do. And um, there are a few tricks. So you can ask for grower rosé. Usually the people that grow the grapes are a little bit more honest about what goes on inside. Um, and not all comp- big companies are bad or evil, uh, by no means. Some can be great and create great products, but overall, most of them are creating just pink chemical swill. Um, you know, and this is something that Champagne struggled with like 50 years ago, where all these big houses were, were creating products that maybe weren't of the highest quality and marketing it as this fun, lively, oh, Champagne, it's the celebratory wine. Rosé, it's the celebratory summer wine. And, um, you know, now it's coming back. Now there are some great grower champagnes. Even the big houses are making wonderful products. And so I think that's what is also happening, going to happen to Rosé. Um, there has, the pendulum has to swing back to quality. That makes sense. And sometimes you can tell a great Rosé by its importer. Mm-hmm. Would that be true? Absolutely. And, and all wines, too. Um, I always tell people to find, you know, three to five importers they really love and turn around the bottle and you can see, you know, you trust this importer. It's this palette you admire. Um, so like for more natural wine, you have like Louis Dressner or you have Kermit Lynch or Neil Rosenthal. And those are, you know, 
these great uh, heralded importers that there's not really anything bad in their books. So you don't have to be worried about that. And it's certainly not a chemical concoction. How did rosé turn into so many chemicals? Like, why why rosé is particularly Mm -hmm. vulnerable to that? Um, I mean, it's present in all aspects of the wine industry. uh, But with rosé, especially now, there's this demand for this specific color. I think it's, like, called this light salmon pink. And all of the rosés, in order for it to sell, have to be that exact tint or shade. (laughs) I didn't know that because I've seen rosés that are from the palest pale to mm-hmm. like ruby red. Yeah. And they're still I mean, maybe one shade back from ruby. Mm-hmm. But it's <laughs> such a wide range. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's true. Like rosé, just like red and white, should have a variety um, of, of colors. But, you know, a lot of these big houses think that it has to be the specific color. Even the other day I was watching a national uh, television program where this brand ambassador was claiming that his rosé was the best and the highest quality because it was this light pink color, as if color has anything to do with quality. And for the listeners, like, what is color's relationship to quality in rosé or in a name wine? Yeah, I mean, color just tells you a little bit about the grape it comes from, maybe the region, maybe some winemaking practices, but it's it's not indicative of quality by any means. Um, Whether or not it's made with Grenache or Tiburon or Pinot Noir, those will affect the amount of color that's found in the eventual wine, but but it doesn't mean it's better or worse. So that's tricky. And as a result, they also, you know, there's a huge problem in the rosé market now where people want the most recent vintage. And so all of these producers rush the wine to market. So they have to have it land by February or March. They have to have the distributors and the importers register with the SLA and then get those coveted by the glass spots, you know, in March, April in restaurants. So how do you have a wine naturally ferment, be done, rest by January, February. It's just, it, it's not ready. Um, it doesn't happen naturally. So you have to kind of do some some tricks and put on some makeup to make it even drinkable. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, with that thought, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear um, more about the extraordinary career of Victoria James. Be right back. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. One Hundred Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to twelve-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. This is Dana Cowan. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I'm here with Victoria James, who is the beverage director and a partner at Coat, which is such a delicious um, Korean steakhouse in New York City. Uh, I, even just thinking of Victoria coming in made me hungry to make a reservation. <laughs> yeah, like, you I, should come back. I'd love I, to have you. I need to eat some meat mm-hmm. um, as the weather gets cold. And not yeah. that I can't eat a lot of meat when the weather is warmer. <laughs> but uh, so we were we were talking about, uh, before the break, we were talking about rosé and, um, and how it's made. And I guess I'm interested in the best way to pursue uh, a wine education and, and the difference of, uh, you know, what you learn from like an old school place mm-hmm. like Harry's to how people are talk about wine in restaurants today. Yeah, so, you know, I often get asked the question of, uh, I want to become a sommelier. How do I get into that? Um, you know, it's tricky because for centuries, the sommelier career existed as sort of an apprenticeship. 
much kind of like chefs. Um, and then only recently in the 80s has it really sort of became become rather a certification program. Um, and that also is very much self-study with, you know, an examining body. So I always tell people the best way is just to start at the bottom and work your way up. <laughs> and if you don't want to start as a busser, a host, or server and work your way up, then you probably shouldn't work in restaurants. Um, because if you work in a restaurant, you're a servant to people and you're there to make people happy. You're not there to geek out about wine. Um, maybe there are other places in the wine industry for you then. Maybe you can work on the distributor or importer side um, or retail. There are so many opportunities, but a sommelier specifically, I believe, and I know this is controversial because a lot of people think that if they get a certification saying they're a sommelier, they're a psalm. No, I don't think so. I think you have to actually be a sommelier and you have to sell wine to guests. And um, right now I work the floor um, most nights at Coat, but when I stop doing that, I believe I'll no longer be a sommelier. That's, that sounds very Cinderella-like. I mean, you, you, know, you leave and you, you become something else. Yeah. Um, although I guess Cinderella's a bad analogy because she went back and then she was in rags. So that's not it. But she was <laughs> but, still lovely. But she was still lovely. Right? Um, and I know, um, I mean, at Food and Wine, we gave Sommelier of the Year awards. And in fact, you mm-hmm. um, received a Sommelier of the a Year award. So congratulations Thank on you. that from Food and Wine. <laughs> that was always one of the questions, mm-hmm. right? Is a person on the floor or not on the floor? Are you mm-hmm. just um, rewarding knowledge and purchasing power? Right. Um, or are you really talking about the way that they interact with guests? What, yeah. do, you, what do you think the, the uh, best way to interact with guests is to have them pick the right wine and then also to avoid some of these like truly horrific experiences that you've had. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the tricks I learned early on in uh, the diner was actually, um, you know, find a way to genuinely love and connect with your guests, Uh, whatever that is. It's different for every person and you have to, do that in a very quick period of time. So you probably have five minutes to figure out what this person wants and how to give it to them in the best way. Um, But it's not even about the wine. I mean, that's the craziest thing that most sommeliers miss. The wine is just a tool in hospitality. It's just a part of the experience. Um, People do not come to your restaurant, believe it or not, to drink (laughs) this wine. (laughs) Do you think think it's reversed in some restaurants? Like they come for the wine and then they get a little food? Yeah, I mean, for sure. There's certain things that are obviously a draw. People come to Roberta's for the lovely pizza. But you stay for the cool, hip vibe and... um, you know, the witty banter and, and fun. And so I think that that's something that, you know, the old world does really well. It's something you can't even describe. It's you walk into a restaurant and you're like, man, this place has an environment, has an atmosphere. Um, and I think that's what we do so well at Coat that yes, it is about the meat, the food, the wine, the drinks. Um, but it's about the atmosphere. It's it creates something that's almost primal of people around fire eating meat <laughs> <laughs> in the dark. It's quite in the dark. No, it's it's dim. It is dim. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I do find it makes you more intimate with your food mm-hmm. and um, lean closer to whoever you're with. <laughs> certainly, which um, you know is certainly intentional. Um, so certainly uh, bring someone you like to coat, <laughs> right? Because uh, you'll be quite close. Um, and then for young women, you know, this is. Often what I tell my sommeliers as well, who are wonderful, strong, powerful women, um, is you have to be careful. It's unfair. It is. And Coat's a wonderful place. And we're very lucky that, you know, we are very, very careful. We have a zero tolerance policy. If a guest ever does anything to anyone, they get kicked out and banned for life. Most restaurants are not like that. Um, so unfortunately, as a young woman in this industry still, we have to be careful. And you have, you, did you say there are seven uh, women psalms? Uh, there's, right now there's four. Four, sorry. Technically. I'm One's on maternity that. leave. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's maternity leave. Yes. That almost is non-existent in restaurants. Yeah. Bravo for maternity leave. I mean, that's not a small thing. Yeah, no. Actually. It's it's great. And um, she's and fabulous. Did she work pregnant on the floor? <laughs> she did. And she was the best salesperson ever. <laughs> because there's a, a potentially a myth um, or disproved here mm-hmm. that pregnant women can't sell wine. Yeah, no, you can. You can. <laughs> and, you know, her, she almost had this like 
hypersensitive, you know, sense of smell rather. Uh, she could smell a cork bottle from across the room and she's um, just so charming and lovely. And she, I mean, she literally was creating human life while working. I mean, the most <laughs> badass person ever. What did you do today? <laughs> um, so we definitely want people like that at Coat and we want to foster that. And do you feel women in general, not only pregnant women, uh, bring something very special to the wine, like the sommelier world? I do. And, um, you know, I think this is just my personal opinion. In this industry, women have to struggle. We have to struggle to stay relevant, to to stay at the top or even near the top. And what's, um, what is the struggle? So the struggle is to be taken seriously, Um and who doesn't want to take you seriously? You know, oftentimes employers, um, luckily not at Cote, but, you know, and guests all the time. And, you know, not also just because of my gender, but of course because of my age. I mean, who the hell am I telling people that have drank wine for much longer than I've been alive what to drink? Um, I mean, that's in itself a very silly concept. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, silly that... Well, that they know more than you do or that they would expect you to know less than they know? A little bit of both. I mean, you know, I think that the most important thing for me and being so young is I I just have to remind myself that I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to really work with what the guest has and knows and figure out a way to make them happy. Um, You know. So do you feel like old but young? (laughs) Because, in fact, you call yourself, you know, a young person in the wine business, but you've been working, I mean, the restaurant business, but you've been working for a long time, actually, (laughs) in real Real years. Yeah. <laughs> and um, though you're age young, your experience old. And what do you think it's going to feel like to cross to not being that young woman anymore? Like, do you look forward to that? Do you, does it worry you? Because it's a, like, it's both great, but maybe it's also, you know, a handicap. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I'm, I'm still quite young, but I've started to feel a little bit of it in the last couple years only because. I um, just have this problem where I overcommit myself. And um, so it's been more of a struggle with, with balance. And, um, you know, we're in an industry where we're selling a drug and it's not, it's not healthy by any means. Sure, it's fun. So, you know, I've had to figure out a way to monitor my, my, my drinking first and foremost and incorporate, of course, more healthy activities and also figure out sustainability. Um, you know, last week, my husband Lyle said, you know, you can say no to things. <laughs> and for some reason, that hadn't dawned on me. I'm so used to saying yes. You always want to be like the woman that does not cause a stir. You say yes, of course I can do that. Um, but I was like, oh, snap, I can say no. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, so that's been lovely. <laughs> uh, you were talking about just sustainability and, um, you know, watching alcohol intake. Do you find that there's a lot of alcoholism in the industry? And you, you mentioned your father's struggle with addiction. Like, do you, does that weigh on you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when I was first in the industry, there's almost this this need to try every wine out there and it's exciting and it's, it's curiosity and then you have to try the new vintages and the new things and I mean every day in New York City there are ways you can drink for free and and plenty um, before work after work um, and then after a while I was like I don't know I mean this is just a lot like I'm, I'm waking up at like 10 11 a.m. sometimes noon going right to work I'm not really doing anything really productive I don't have a life um outside of work, I'm not developing myself as a person. And, you know, and then I also got into writing a lot and then I just realized I can't even have a glass or two of wine the night before and get up early and write. I can't be productive. Um, and it's, it's just not, it's not healthy. It's not normal. And, you know, I don't think that the, every sommelier out there is an alcoholic. That's not um, what I'm trying to convey, but I think our industry has a serious problem with alcoholism and admitting that it's a problem because it's, it's actually not funny or cool or sexy to be drunk on Grand Cru Burgundy every night. Um, when I see people posting these things on like Instagram or social media, uh, you know, boasting about the fact they've been out six nights this week at parties and, and how drunk they are. It's, it's not funny. It's, it's actually a problem. And I don't want our next generation to think that's, that's cute or that's something to aspire to. 
it's actually a problem. And do you think they don't, it's not recognized as a problem because it's quote unquote work? Yeah, of course. And that's sort of the veil they hide behind. And, you know, at many of these events, of course, people are spitting, they're just tasting. Um, but not often. But do you think that it, it's hiding or masking an insecurity, an emptiness? I mean, as so much of this yeah. does. Uh, All of the above. And I, I've, I've been there too, of course. I mean, young woman in the wine industry, of course I was insecure. <laughs> and of course you drink to, to fit in, to feel cool, to feel accepted. Um, yeah, of course. But at a certain point, you have to realize that and say, okay, what is healthy and what's not? And I don't have the answer to that. I think it's different for everyone. Um, but I think it's important to constantly ask yourself that question. And you had mentioned your father, which is his, the challenges he had, do they affect you in any way? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that if anything, it was, it was good to go through that as a child because I realized what I never wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, how hurtful that is on everyone around you. Um, you know, and everything it leads to broken promises, not being present, um, and just this, this abusive cycle, um, on your own body. And I would never want to do that to my husband, to my colleagues, um, to myself. And so it was a good learning lesson. And so whenever I, I see myself, you know, I, I don't ever want to get there. And so it was a good thing to learn at a very, very young age. And I'm seeing that a lot in the industry. I, I can learn from other people's mistakes. I don't have to make them. <laughs> that's that's great. Let's talk about balance because you have this amazing husband. And it, and it seems that you do seek out balance. Mm -hmm. And some of it is with him and some of it is, um, you know, like collecting art or doing things that are outside mm -hmm. of the confines of restaurants or writing. Um, yeah. So what are the things that you do to, to find balance? Yeah, so um, this happened after I left Morea. Um, I was so obsessed with all of these swimming exams. And um, I realized I hadn't actually read a book. I mean, a book not about wine. Probably five years. I hadn't read a magazine. I, hadn't, I didn't do anything that wasn't wine-related or studying or flashcards. I was like, what am I doing? So <laughs> I subscribed to The New Yorker. I realized there were things happening in the world. I read a first book that wasn't about wine and I felt a little guilty at first. And then the most important thing too, is I started to have more of an appreciation for the natural world. And I think that's so important and so lost in a lot of people in restaurants. Um, so I started foraging and, um, um, you know, just escaping into the woods and realizing that beauty doesn't have to be, you know, a perfectly placed demi tasse spoon. It could be a little piece of wild sorrel poking out from behind a log and doing those activities with Lyle, my husband, brought us closer together it's something that's that's healthy and good and you're not looking at a screen all day um and even last weekend too halfway through our saturday together he's like you're, you're just on your computer you're writing all day <laughs> we have to do something let's go see art let's go to a museum let's go to an opera i was like oh yes you're right so it's it's good to have someone that reminds you um the world is not just one thing it's not just wine it's not just studying wine it, it's there's so much out there I love the notion of you foraging, <laughs> and um, we met in an extraordinary event called Heirloom Fire, where we walked through the woods and ate foraged foods, and it was there were um, meats being grilled over open fire, and you're um, you collect, pick, and then you've made art out of some of the things that you foraged, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean that event with Heirloom Fire was so magical, <laughs> um, and I like things like that because. You know, it's theatrical, it's fun, it's an escape. Um, but it's also, you're returning to all of, you're returning to this, the part of the natural world that's often forgotten. And I think that in restaurants too, you know, um, we, we have a Michelin-starred restaurant. The pressure there is incredibly high. And when someone gets up and if you don't fold a napkin, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, it's important. But, you know, you have to remind yourself that there's so much beauty outside this um, this charade and these, these performances of the restaurant. Um, it's, it's, it's nice to stay connected to that. It's important. And you're, are you making something from forged in ingredients? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, right now um, I created an Amaro, a bitter, a digestif, um, which is still in barrel. Um, and so where I, are you making that? Um, so right now it's at a distillery in Brooklyn, uh, 
TBD. Um, and, you know, I think that the great thing about forged ingredients is that there's so many options, too. Um, I just happen to be from, like, the wine alcohol side of the business. So, of course, I tended towards that. But just, you know, fresh ingredients and salads and cocktails. Um, and all in the menu and coat in all of our cocktails, too, we use a lot of natural local ingredients. And um, one of the things that also is in the future is um, a program that you're helping uh, to set up to have my, um, well, you you should describe what it is, but to help people who don't have access to wine, Mm -hmm. taste wine so that they can um, grow their palate, if that's the right way to put it. Exactly. So right now we're setting up a nonprofit um, and I'm coming together with the advisory board um, to launch in early next year. It's a nonprofit aimed at giving free wine classes to women and minorities in the hospitality industry. Because when I was coming up in the industry, you know, it's not even that the classes are expensive. It's it's even that when you go to a lot of these, you have, there's so much opportunity to, to be not taken seriously or sexualized or belittled because of your gender or your race. And I don't want the future to look like that for the hospitality world. So I want to give people the opportunity um, to build their careers, to give them a skill set. Um, I hope to see in 10 years, not just female or um, minorities who are sommeliers, that's not it, but restaurant owners and winery owners and people who actually hold the power. Um, Because right now there's not enough women and minorities holding actual power. So when you look forward to what your life would be in the future when you're not (laughs) the the young person, um, what do you see? Like what, what does the future for you look like? Because I feel at age 13, you had a little bit of a sense. And then at 19, you had a bit of a sense. And you're living out so many of those dreams. So are there dreams that you have right now that you can forecast for the future? Yeah. Um, you know, they're rather ambitious. So I think I'm going to um, not um, – I'm, I'm going to speak a, a tiny bit on them. Um, I, I want to change the industry. Um, I want to team up with other like-minded people to change the way wine is enjoyed, wine is thought of, um, wine is sold. I want to mention... how are you going to do that? (laughs) Well, I want to, um, you know, the nonprofit is helping to mentor and create uh, positions for those women and minorities in the industry. Um, But I'm also working on a second book that's going to talk more about my story, but it's also a broader narrative. Uh, I don't think most people know what happens in the wine and restaurant industry. I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg with a lot of recent press. Um, and I, my hope is that through telling my stories and by mentoring others, there will be a change. I think that the time has come that a lot of these chauvinistic male restaurateurs um, are of the past. It, it has to be. Um, we need more kind-hearted, good-willed people. Um, you know, I'm so lucky that, you know, Simon Kim, our, our owner, um, exists at Cote because, you know, he is an, an immigrant and he comes from this background uh, that really humbled him. And he's also giving it back and paying it back and always trying to find ways to support women and minorities. And that's rare. So who would I be if I just sat back and enjoyed his kindness? I would be very selfish. So I have to pay it forward and do the same. And so um, I'm thankful that I have people like him in my life. And I want to continue to pay it forward and um, build build other careers. And so pay it forward is actually the very last question of the interview. (laughs) Uh, Is there a woman in the, anywhere in the hospitality world that you admire who you feel like has been a role model for you? Yeah. So, you know, when I was first beginning in the wine industry, it was actually very difficult to find a female mentor. Um, I think there's this horrible notion sometimes of eat or be eaten. And um, there's so few to to see women in in roles of power that they often are very can be very catty or destructive. Um, So I struggle with that. And then, you know, a, a few years later, I finally found someone that not only was a mentor, but supported me and continues to do so. Um, and her name is uh, Rita Jamais. And I love Rita. <laughs> I love Rita. She's so kind and warm. And um, I, you know, I always felt as if with so many people, I had to I- explain myself and say, um, you know, this is what I'm doing and, and this is why you should like me and this is why you should help me. And there was never that with her. She just um, accepted me right away. And um, she's fabulous and 
we need more women like her and like yourself, Dana. <laughs> well, with with the Rita, um, thank you so much mm-hmm. for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I, I love hearing your vision for the future because I believe anything you set your mind to, you will make happen. And the change you're talking about is necessary. And I feel like you will find the way and lead the way. So um, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to follow you on social, where will they find you? Uh, at Get Your Grape On, G-E-T-U-R-G-R-A-P-E-O-N. I realize I always say there's the last question, then there's another last question. <laughs> so we didn't talk about undercoat, which was the uh, which is the most fun thing that I've done in the you know in the last few weeks, which is the bar undercoat the restaurant, mm. which l- has growing walls that are lit and green, and then um, this fabulous chic furniture and phenomenal um, cocktail program and delicious. Uh, addictive snacks like rice cakes with um, sweet chili sauce. So I, I'm really sorry, but I, I have to draw you back in to say, um, yeah, of course. To ha- what, what was it like to birth Undercoat? Yeah, so I mean, that took us about a year plus to even uh, get to open. It was a, a whole new restaurant opening in itself, um, but it's been fabulous. It's a unique project because I'm used to restaurants. This is really more of a bar or cocktail lounge, um, but it was great. We brought in a cocktail creator from Norway, Sandre Kassen, and he makes these really clean, unpretentious, um, highly crushable cocktails. And then uh, to pair with that, I did um, a really fun uh, champagne list, which is focusing on growers and the largest special club grower champagne collection. Um, because I just think that we wanted a space that was um, an escape and really fresh and um, Simon and I both share that appreciation for the natural world. And so he's gone foraging with us and um, loves the concept of escaping. But how do you do that with a nine to five in New York? Um, so we created that for people. Um, it's almost like the Rainforest Cafe for adults. Um, that is so well said. <laughs> I'm sure you'll say that many times more. But it, it is. And the champagne program is to die for. It's so great. Thank you. Yeah. So come check it out. Okay. So now if I have to like mm. wrap it up, I'm just gonna say like, here's a, like a little champagne <laughs> toast to, to the future. And thank you for joining us. Um, so you guys know where to find me at FW Scout on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And if you like what you hear, uh, go to Apple podcast and subscribe and you'll get to listen all the time so until next week uh have a great week and talk to you then thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.